Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome to this special edition of St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. This hour, we're listening to highlights of a storytelling event recorded yesterday evening at the Greater St. Mark Family Church in North St. Louis County. The storytellers are St. Louis area residents whose lives changed drastically after Michael Brown was fatally shot by a Ferguson police officer five years ago today. Their stories reflect on race, violence, and community trauma. Gregory Carr Sr. is a native of St. Louis and an instructor of speech and theater at Harris Stowe State University. His award-winning plays, Johnny Taylor is Gone and A Colored Funeral, were produced at the historic Karamu House in Cleveland and the Cleveland Playhouse. Last night, he shared a story about a meeting with an old friend that brought to light the trauma and worry experienced by black parents when they see a young black man killed by police, a young man who could well be their own child. August 9th, 2014 was a day like any other day. I was out fishing with my brother Daryl, and we were over in East St. Louis at Frank Holden Park. And we were out there about 6 o'clock in the morning, and we were, it was about 80 degrees already. So it was one of those hot, sticky St. Louis days that sticks to your T-shirt. And we didn't catch anything. And so I drove him home to Florissant. And I dropped him off, and I simply told my brother, I said, I don't want to drive down West Florissant because I don't want Ferguson police to harass me. So I took 270 to 170 to 70 back to my home in Normandy. And the first thing I did, like I always do, is I got on Facebook and started looking at what was on my timeline. And as I began to look, I started to see very distressing messages about a young man being killed. Fast forward a week later, August 16th. By this time, I had become a fully engaged social media warrior, and I'm debating everybody on social media, and I'm debating back and forth about police brutality and what is really a riot. And yes, I unfriended a whole lot of people. But there was one message that stood out to me. It was a high school friend of mine. Her name was Adrian, And she started talking about the conditions of her neighborhood, and she was talking about the sound of gunfire and protesters and police. And she asked a very poignant question. She said, am I crazy? And I simply said, no, Adrian, you're not crazy. It sounds like what you've described for us are conditions of war. And maybe you're suffering from PTSD. Is there anything I can do for you? She said, yes. Could you please bring me some groceries? I can't get out of my subdivision. This was also my last weekend of being able to have some freedom because I had to start school in a very short time, and this was my orientation week for Harris Stowe. And that Monday, I got busy with meeting with administrators and going to departmental meetings that the day got away from me. And it was 8 o'clock at night, and I called Adrian. I said, Adrian, I'm so sorry. The day got away from me. And I have the groceries for you. Can can I come over? She said, no. Very sharply, it's too late. I said, but it's 8 o'clock. She said, they don't allow anybody in Ferguson after 5 o'clock. There's a 5 o'clock curfew. Unless you live here, you can't come in here. So can you come back tomorrow around 3 o'clock? I said, sure. That'd be a better time. I shortly turned into Adrian's subdivision, and I went inside. I knocked on the door, and, and she gave me a big hug. I brought her the groceries. 
I said, how are you doing, Adrian? She said, I'm, I'm, I'm managing. I said, well, we don't have to talk about the Mike Brown incident right now. We don't have to talk about everything that you talked about on Facebook. I said, I haven't seen you in so long. I said, tell me something about yourself, because I hadn't seen her in 20 years. She said, well, I have two twin boys. They're young men. They're 20 years old, and they both have dreadlocks, and I'm worried about them all the time because they get racially profiled. And I said, well, I have a 13-year-old. He loves soccer, and he's a happy-go-lucky kid, and he walks around with earbuds in his ears, and he's not very attentive at times to his surroundings. And I'm concerned about him, too, because he's big for his age. So we had that in common, that we were both concerned parents. And then all at once, our conversation was interrupted by a fly. And Adrian became fixated with this fly, and she would not stop until she killed this fly. Ten minutes later, and she sat down, and she was shaking. I said, Adrian, are you okay? She said, no. I said, why did you need to kill that fly? She said, because that fly was so loud. It was as loud as the helicopter that's been over my house for 10 days straight. And the lights pouring into my bedroom window that I cannot sleep and the sound of gunfire and she was very upset and just as I went to console her there was a knock at the door and she said you're the only person I invited over who could it be I said I don't know this is your house she said well could you answer I said this is your house what, what, what do I do she said could you please answer it I said okay so I walked to the door and I opened the door and there was a young white man he had a blue Oxford shirt blue jeans and tennis shoes he had an armful of I heart Ferguson signs and he said, can I put a sign on your front lawn? Because we want to show that Ferguson is united. This is not the Ferguson that we know because the media is painting Ferguson in a very bad light. I said, well, sir, I don't live here. I'm just visiting my friend. I said, you might want to address it to her. And so would you like to come in? So he came in and he said, well, I'm from Ferguson and, and I am a product of Ferguson Forest and Schools. I went to McClure and I had a lot of black friends and we all got along. We didn't have any racial problems. And of course, Adrian and I looked at each other with a side eye, and we nodded. And then suddenly, we're having this conversation about this sign. And he said, I really need you to put this sign in your front lawn, because it shows that we're unified. And Adrian simply said, I'm just not quite ready to put that sign in my yard. He said, no, I think it would be a really good sign to put in your yard. And I realized it was no longer a request, but a demand. And so I stepped in, I said, I think She's told you she doesn't want to put the sign in her yard. And I think you should respect that. Well, I think it's a good sign. I said, it might be, but I don't think she wants to put it in her yard just yet. And I think you should respect that. And Jesse is about to leave. He said, well, would you like to have one? And I said, okay, I'll take one. He said, because we need people outside of Ferguson to realize that this is not the Ferguson that we grew up in. I said, okay, well, very good. And he went on his way. And he went on to the other houses down the street. Days later, I received a phone call because of a viral interview that I did online that I had an opportunity to go on NPR with The Takeaway with John Hockenberry. And they asked me to bring my son because I talked about in this interview how I had to have the talk with my son. So as we're sitting in the studio and we're preparing, he said, I'm going to ask a question. And dad, I don't want you to interrupt. I said, all right. And he asked my son a very pointed question. He said, Gregory, have you ever been racially profiled by the police? Have you ever been afraid of the police? And I looked at him because I didn't know what to say. Because we'd just had the talk the night before. He said, yes, yes, I have. And I am in shock because we had not talked about this. 
And he said, tell me about it. He said, we got racially profiled coming from a basketball game in South County, and the police stopped us, and they put the flashlights in our eyes, and they harassed our coach, and they harassed every single one of us. So what do I take away from this? I say the social media is a powerful weapon, because if it weren't for social media, I would have never seen the seriousness and the gravity of what happened to Mike Brown. Mike Brown's body laid on that ground for four and a half hours in 90 degree heat, and all the world was able to see it. Had it not been for social media, I wouldn't have stepped outside of my comfort zone and asked Adrian, what could I do to help you? And I learned about not only who she was, but I learned about more of who I was. And lastly, I got to see life through somebody else's eyes because I started thinking about how much I wanted to protect Adrian from this person who wanted to force this sign on her. And I started thinking about my happy-go-lucky 13-year-old son who was asked this very adult-like question and I wanted to protect him, but I couldn't. And then I started thinking about Adrian's two sons with dreadlocks who get profiled, but she could still touch them and say hello to them and hug them. And I could still say hello to my 13-year-old son who's now 18 years old and just went to college. But Mike Brown Sr. and Leslie McSpadden, all they have is memories. Because then I realized that Mike Brown wasn't just their son. He was our son too. That was Gregory Carr Sr., a native of St. Louis and an instructor of speech and theater at Harris-Stowe State University. You're listening to a special edition of St. Louis on the Air. We're listening to stories recorded last night at the Greater St. Mark Family Church in North St. Louis County. Up next is Aziza Binti, a passionate storyteller with a focus on empowerment, wellness, photography, and documentary film. In this story, she talks about coming to the realization that she unknowingly feared black men and how she worked to love black men more after Michael Brown Jr.'s death. I met my best friend Danny in 2013. We were both at a uh, friend's home filled with area black poets who were like the dopest people in the world. It was amazing. And Danny struck me as kinder and sweeter than I'd really ever known a man to be. I mean, this brother was really cool. We talked for hours on end about everything, it seemed like. We hung out, we went to the movies, went out to eat. But there was one thing that was missing. Danny had never actually been in my home. So it was a little after midnight. Danny hit me up. That's not unusual. But this time, he wanted to come by. I mean, I'm a lesbian, he's straight, it should be cool, but I'm still a woman, he's a man. I don't know. So I sat there frozen and a little confused. Why was I afraid to let my friend come through? I mean, if it was my homegirl, yeah, come on, girl. We finna chill. So I responded, uh, you know what? I'm actually getting a little tired, bro. Um, mm, I'm gonna catch you another time. That night, I had nightmares about my friend. 
He wasn't my friend in these nightmares. He was something else. I woke up crying that next morning, confused. Why had someone so kind and sweet who I enjoyed in my life triggered such fear for me with a simple request to hang out? That afternoon, Danny texted again, hey Ziza, what you up to? I'm chilling, just editing, what about you? Yo, I'm in the neighborhood. Maybe I can stop by since it was too late yesterday. Okay. Because by this time, I figured I needed to face this. I needed to move past it. So I was still afraid, but I said, yeah, man, come through. We can have some lunch. I immediately got on the horn, <laughs> texting my friend, Allison. Allison, uh, hey, I need a favor, friend. Danny's coming over for the first time, and uh, can, can, can you come over at the same time? <laughs> she was like, cool, no problem. Didn't even ask me why. Great. So it's all set. Allison will be here. Danny will come over. I'll make a dope lunch, because I can't cook. <laughs> we'll have a good time. They'll leave, along with the fear, right? Danny arrived, we all chilled, it was a good time, we laughed, we talked about everything. It was time for them to go, they left. Fear stayed. A few weeks later, I was in my living room on my computer and the statuses started to hit my Facebook page. Yo, the police shot somebody in Canfield. I was used to hearing about the police killing people in St. Louis and all the other cities I lived in. I chose to believe that the person who got shot probably did something and that's why it happened. That's what I believed at the time. But this was different. This was a boy. This was an 18-year-old boy. Danny got back from Canada. He had been gone during this time, texting, saying, hey, Z, you okay? I'm good, man. I'm doing the best I can do. But I worried about my friend. I kept thinking, what if that had been Danny? Or my brothers? Or my nephews? or my cousins. That hurt to think. But it also hurt to know that Mike was someone's brother and cousin and son. I didn't know what to do with all of the feelings I had about what was going on with Danny and I. I realized that when Mike was killed, I immediately was able to see him as a boy taken from our society. I was immediately able to feel compassion for his family and their loss. That meant something to me. 
And it made me realize that the way that I saw black men before that moment wasn't in that way. I did not see them fully. And I couldn't understand why. Why so many black men in my family, yet there seems to be this disconnect for black men outside of my family? And I wanted to close that gap, to heal that chasm. I began to navigate these feelings that I was having and challenge myself to see things differently. I began to have conversations and critically think about where these thoughts had come from. Why was I so afraid of black men? Who planted those beliefs in my mind? Because they seemed foreign to me. They didn't belong to me. They weren't mine. And so as I began to do that, I started pouring that energy into my work. It was everything in me. And I began to see black men differently. I started seeing them everywhere. I mean, loving on little kids, reading stories on the porch, walking with their partners arm in arm. And it struck me, where had these men been all along? Invisible. I had rendered them invisible. And choosing to challenge myself on another level made them visible. Their loveliness, their beauty, their silliness, their gruffness, their gentleness. I began to see them in their wholeness, and I too began to heal. You know, I think that's how everybody deserves to be seen, whole, complete, everyone, every single one. Thank you. That was Aziza Binti, a filmmaker and photographer from St. Louis. We need to take a short break, but we'll be back with more stories in a moment. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. Now back to this special edition of St. Louis on the Air. Stories recorded before a live audience last night at the Greater St. Mark Family Church in North St. Louis County. The stories reflect on race, violence, and community trauma in the aftermath of Michael Brown Jr.'s death five years ago today. The event was hosted by Shiraz Gorman, a poet, storyteller, and award-winning advertising copywriter and St. Louis native. She is a member of St. Louis-based Screwed Arts Collective, a founding committee member of the St. Louis Brick City Poetry Festival, and is founder and executive director of Sibling Support Network, an organization dedicated to supporting people who have lost siblings to a violent crime. Between storytellers, she shared her own experience of being profiled by police. When I was 19 years old, 
I was driving down Highway 40, 64 going west, and I'm a bit squeamish. And somebody's poor dog made its way onto the highway, and its carnage was just strewn across two of the lanes. And I tried to dodge it, and I swerved a bit, and I had a friend in the back seat of the car. So we're just going about. And I looked out my rearview mirror and I saw that a Maryland Heights police officer was then following me. And I paid it no mind. You know, I was just like, oh, okay. Maybe he'll see like I didn't want to roll over like a dead animal um, in the high, on the highway. So I just kept going about. And then when I got off on Brentwood Road, I noticed that this officer was still following me. And sure enough, by the time I got to the intersection of Manchester and Brentwood, I was pulled over. And the police officer approached the car. And his first question was, why do you have somebody sitting in your back seat? Why are they not in the passenger seat? And I had a carton of rice milk that spilled on my passenger seat. And I explained to the officer, well, you know, I don't want my friend sitting on a, a wet seat, so he's sitting in the back. And he proceeded to ask me, did I have a chauffeur's license? And I was like, no. And he was like, get out of the car. And I was handcuffed at the corner at 19 years old for not having a chauffeur's license because I had a friend riding in the back seat of my car because a carton of rice milk spilled on my passenger side seat. I'm in the back of the car crying because I could not understand how can I get locked up for not having a chauffeur's license? Like, no warning, no, put some newspaper on your passenger seat and have your friend sit in the passenger seat because you need a chauffeur's license for somebody to be in your back seat. No, that was not the case. And when they took me to the station, the arresting officer proceeded to book me. And as I sat down, another officer walked in and also started to chastise me and pulled my hair. And I began to cry again. My mother and uncle showed up and somehow I was magically released. But $325 later, because my car was impounded that quickly, and a load of humiliation later, I get home and my mother is screaming mad. And at that moment, I knew that my mother yelling at me for being out in Brentwood, Maryland Heights had nothing to do with my decisions that day. It had everything to do with the fact that she knew if those police officers chose to, my life could have ended at 19 years old. 
And when we start looking at these events that are taking place, we tend to think that there's no long tail of history with this. We tend to think that the anger and the frustration somehow is not justified and is not righteous. So as you listen to these stories tonight, I ask of you all to really sit with the layers of the lived histories of each storyteller who is taking the stage. That was Shiraz Gorman, a poet and storyteller from St. Louis. You're listening to a special edition of St. Louis on the Air. We're listening to stories recorded last night at the Greater St. Mark Family Church. Our next storyteller is Kat Daniels, who goes by Mama Cat. She is a retired Navy wife and grandmother and the leader of Potbangers, a group of volunteers who help unhoused families rebuild their lives. She has a degree from the Culinary Institute of St. Louis and a doctorate from Eden Theological Seminary. She believes in the healing power of food, saying that when you, quote, feed the body, you feed the spirit. She's originally from the Bronx, and she began her story by sharing how she settled in North St. Louis County. A note to listeners that Kat's story contains use of the N-word. We've left the word in because it authentically reflects her experience. It came a time where I left the cocoon of security in the boogie down, and I moved around the country. And I was blessed to be able to be around people that came from every walk of life from all around the world. And I learned to cook different meals from around the world. My husband was a sailor in the United States Navy, so I got to travel. And when he retired, we chose to settle here in Florissant, Missouri. And when I came here, I said, I'm gonna go ahead to school, get my culinary degree. And I got in school and it was everything for me. I just love food. I think it speaks a lot of languages. I think that it heals so much. And so I designed cakes because that's what I do for fun. And August 9th, 2014, I was in my kitchen working on a cake for a client. And I had the TV playing in the background. And you know, I turned around at some point and I saw a young man laying in the middle of the street. And I, that's a jacked up movie. So I turned around and I kept on going. And I was so into what I was doing, time had passed. And I turned around again and this young man is still in the middle of the street. So, okay, so you got my attention now because this ain't a movie because we didn't go to commercial and I know I don't have HBO. Y'all excuse my language, but I'm just gonna keep it real. When I was looking at that, the message that I took was that we're gonna let him lay right here so we can keep you niggas in your place. And I got mad. And so I couldn't go nowhere that day because I had to finish this cake for this client. But the next day I was boots on ground. I stopped by Sam's Club, got some snacks, cause I believe in the healing power of food again. And I had water, but I couldn't drive close enough with the water, so me and my grandson, we had snacks and we walking through. And we meeting people and we talking and we got signs and we protesting and days is going, cause I'm doing this every day. I would go to school at six o'clock in the morning. And when I got out of class at 11, 
I go and cook, and I'm hitting the street. One day, I'm out there, and I'm like giving out the stuff, and I met a young man. This young man's name was Josh Williams. And Josh said to me, can I get some of that? I'm like, sure, shorty. You know, so I gave him snacks. He said, my friends want some. So Josh walked me down the street. It was a furniture store lot, and it was a group of young folks that was on this lot. So I'm like, yo, what y'all doing? They was like, we ain't going home till we get justice for Mike Brown. I'm like, yo, right on. So how can I, you know, help y'all out? What can I do? A young man that I come to know as Dante says to me, a little home-cooked meal won't hurt nothing. He didn't even know he was speaking my language, right? <laughs> so I'm like, all right. So I went home, because I told him it was late. I had to go home. I had to go to class. I said, I'll be back tomorrow. So I came back the next day with spaghetti, salad, and garlic bread. And we sat down. See, I could have just dropped the food off with these young people, but that defeats the whole purpose. We got to come together if we're going to win, right? So I sat down with these young folks, and I broke bread with them. And this began a routine. Every day I get out of class, I go cook food, and I bring food out there, and me and my family, it's my new family. And we sat down and we ate. And that's where the name Mama Cat come from from this group of awesome young people. And then, you know, eventually people started going home. You remember it was a time where there was a lull in the protest. But these 10 young people kept going every day. Eventually the people started coming back out. Ferguson October was going down. And we had a lot of people. And then people stayed out there this time. It came a time where the non-indictment happened and the crowd went crazy, right? Because it was going down. And we kept on going, and we was fighting even harder. Then came the day of December 23rd, 2014. I had just left from South Florida and went home and was getting ready to go to bed. And I got a phone call from the same young man, Joshua Williams, and he was crying. He said, Mama, they killed another one of us. And I was like, Damn, I put my clothes back on and I went over there to Hanley Road, Hanley and Frost. And this young man was still laying on the ground. But what really angered me was they had his mother standing only feet from his covered body, asking her questions. There was no humanity in that. So when this woman came out, you know, I went and started talking to her. And what I found out is, not only did she not have money to pay her bills, how was she going to bury her baby? So, you know, talking to us, a bunch of us activists sat down, we talked. And we decided to go ahead and do a, a fundraiser to help this family. And all the talent came. We, had got, we got some talented people here. We got some real talented people. Everybody came through. And we raised most of the money. And she was able to bury her baby with dignity and respect because they deserve that. And so we, it seemed like the police just did open season on young black males in St. Louis, in that space. They was mad because we was in the street. They didn't know how to deal with it, right? Best way to deal with y'all, chill. 
But as these babies kept dying, we was the ones that was there with these families and cooking. See, because a revolutionary act is to provide a repast for a family after they have to leave their baby in the cemetery and give them a space to love on each other. And only then can they begin their healing. Not end, but begin. And so we had extra food. And eventually I'm like, okay, where can we go with the food? And one of our fellow activists said, downtown. I didn't know where downtown was, but we went down there. We began to meet some of our unhoused neighbors, which I call them my unhoused family now. But we had a group of activists and we began to go down there and we began to build relationships. And this, during this time, and this is when my organization, Pop Bangers Feed the Body Mission was born. Because if we're gonna sit here and talk about Black Lives Matter, you better include every black life. And I'm not talking about those of us that have four walls and a roof but our family that's the sky is they roof and there's no walls to keep them warm at night. But as we go on, we must understand, Asada Shakur said it best, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. We gotta fight because we ain't done. It is our duty to win. I know that day is gonna come. We must love and support each other. We ain't doing that enough, fam. Only then can we drop the chains that's binding us. I don't know where we going in, but I know where we began. All because a young man said the world will know my name. And he was a catalyst for change. Let not the change be in vain. Thank you so much. That was Mama Cat Daniels of Florissant. She's the leader of Potbangers, a group of volunteers who help unhoused families rebuild their lives. You're listening to a special edition of St. Louis on the Air. We're listening to stories from St. Louis residents whose lives changed drastically after Michael Brown was fatally shot by a Ferguson police officer five years ago today. Last but certainly not least is storyteller Danny Boyd, a poet, songwriter, and photographer. He studied creative writing at St. Louis Community College and communication at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, which led him to also become a teaching artist. After seeing the way the media portrayed the unrest in Ferguson, he went out to photograph the protest to try to tell a different story. The experience reminded him of how white men treated him when he was growing up. Oh, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy, that was the song that my grade school gym teacher used to sing every time that he saw me. Hearing that short, stocky little white man sing that song made me feel like I was his favorite student. <laughs> I was athletic. I was a good participator and I was even one of two black boys in my first grade class, so I felt like he had to know that I existed. Each time I would see him, he would always sing that song in the hallways and I would get excited and get expired. And then one day, 
I grew up and I went to middle school and I became a teenager. And the first time I saw him after I grew up and became a teenager in middle school, I started to approach him at one of our school dances as that same little black boy that I thought I still was that had that song in my head. And when I saw him, the look that he gave me was, you're not that anymore. The way I felt when I saw the look on his face said that you're one of them now. You're one of those troublesome black men. And I knew he recognized me because I can see it in his face, but I could also see that he didn't want to recognize me. And in that moment, the little black boy inside of me died. And at the age of 12 years old, I learned that white men believed they had the privilege to determine who I was going to be. So there I was, August 10th, 2014. I was staring at the most beautiful full moon that I had ever seen. It hung low enough from the sky to touch the lake that was directly in front of me. And that lake looked like it was the edge of the world and I could touch it from the beach that I was standing on. I felt the calmness that I had ever felt in my life because I was over a thousand miles away from all the chaos that was happening in St. Louis. You see, my perspective of that moon was from Toronto. I found myself there in search of new opportunities because I felt like some of those opportunities weren't available here at home. Being amongst the diverse group of population that was there seeing all the different ethnicities made me feel at home. I felt free to be me. The day before, August 9th, I got a text message from one of my best friends and she was saying that there had been a shooting in Ferguson. Now, I was in Toronto, so I didn't want to use up my international data. <laughs> so I couldn't respond to her. So I decided to get on social media and see what was going on. And when I logged in, literally every one of my timelines was filled with the burning North County, my North County. You see, that quick trip that was on fire sat directly in front of the town home that I grew up in for the first two years of my life. That same gas station was down the street from where one of my best friends lived and around the corner and a couple of blocks down chambers from where I've lived since 1992. The moment I saw all of those pictures, the comfort that I had in Toronto began to fall apart. 26 years of living in North County, and at no point have I ever felt helpless to be in my community. So there I was, August 10th, staring at the most beautiful full moon that I had ever seen. And I felt free, thinking about the bondage that had taken the life of Michael Brown Jr. I wasn't a part of that anymore. I was free. And I began to ask myself, why should I go back? You see, for the entire year of 2014, I dreamed of moving to Toronto 
And the only thing I had to do to make that dream come true was to miss my flight back home. I had a decision to make. I decided to come home. Six days after the quick trip had burned down, I found myself riding up chambers right past this church to go to West Florissant to see what actually happened in the Knights of Ferguson for myself. I've always been an adventurous person out until three o'clock in the morning taking pictures in cities. So on August 15th, which was a Friday, I decided that that was the day I was gonna see for myself what was going on. So I was riding up Chambers thinking I was gonna make the left turn on West Florissant and the first thing I saw was all this traffic. Of all my years of living in North County, I had never seen that much traffic going down West Florissant. I ended up having to park my car in the lot where the Walgreens used to be and I walked a mile all the way from Chambers down to the Quick Trip. And as I began to walk, I started to see people that looked like me, young black people, riding in their cars, and their radios were really loud, like really, 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 really loud. And then I began to notice people were hanging out of windows and they were riding on the rooftops of cars, and I felt this energy that I never knew could exist in that moment. And I began to get excited. I was running, running down West Florida and trying to grab every single shot that I get. And every time I passed a car, somebody would yell up, hey, yo, cuz, get this picture. <laughs> and so I obliged them. I started taking pictures and I decided that I wanted to use my long lens so I can get isolation of the subjects from the rest of the background because I wanted to tell a unique story based on those people in that car. So after about 15 minutes of these AO photos, I finally made it to the quick trip. And the first thing I noticed was peace. There weren't any riots. There was no fire. There was no tear gas. There wasn't even a clearly contrasted line of people versus the police when I got there. It felt like every single black person in the city of St. Louis was there. The elders, the young people, men, women, parents with their children were there. It seemed like every single black person in St. Louis was there because something about what Darren Wilson represented had a hold on them. Whether it was the unjust traffic tickets and traffic stops, or whether it was the fact that every last one of us had to show up on one corner in North County just to get the rest of the city to hear us. But it was all done with love. That same love led a man to set up a drum set underneath the Quick Trip Pavilion and start playing. It made me feel like I was at the May Day Parade, the way you, the way you feel, the pulse of the drum lines pulsating through your body. And he was playing along with all the people that were chanting, hands up, don't shoot. And so originally, I thought I was just going down there to observe. 
to just hide behind my camera and take pictures. But I felt myself being drawn into that moment. The more we began to chant, notice I said we, not them, it became about us. And I realized I was a part of this movement. Every time I fixed my mouth to yell the words, hands up, I could feel the existence of my soul pulsating through my body and connecting with theirs. I was so caught up in the euphoria of us that I never even stopped to think about how misleading the media had been. You see, when I looked on social media, I thought I would see flames and broken glass, but there was none of that. There was people just like me and they were my community. And in that moment, I was glad I decided to come home and capture those moments for my friends and myself. But somebody wasn't glad I did. Two years after that night, I decided to submit one of my photos taken during that night to an exhibit called Freedom Imagine, Freedom Live that was at Lindenwood University. The photo that I chose to submit was of an activist who was dressed like a police officer. He had one of those kind of basic, under, not really undercover, but the casual kind of shirt that police wear that's a t-shirt, but it just says police written across the top. But underneath it, he had written the phrase, killing our kids. And he also had the police officer's hat. And on that hat, he had written the word murderer. And then he also had a chain handcuffed to his wrist and he was carrying a law dictionary. So there we were standing in between all these cars and I'm lining him up with my camera and I'm shooting and my pictures were out of focus because it was so dark my camera was having difficulty getting focus of him. So the first six shots that I took were either out of focus or they were blurry, but that seventh shot was perfect. And it felt like a miracle because I chose not to look at my images for a year because I wanted to make sure I had the clarity to see what was there. So when I was scrolling through my images, I saw blurry, 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 out of focus, blurry, blurry, blurry. And then this miracle of a shot was the one I decided to submit to this exhibit. And I felt nervous about it because Lindenwood is in St. Charles and St. Charles is kind of conservative or at least that's what I've been led to believe. <laughs> and so I had this dialogue with myself, with my friend Aziza, with my cousin. Can I really submit this photo? And I eventually did. So a month after the exhibit closed, I was having a conversation with the curator and she told me someone was offended by your photo. And that someone was a police officer. And in that moment, I kind of laughed because I thought to myself, in big, bold letters, there's the phrase, freedom live, freedom imagine. You knew what you was getting into when you came to that show. <laughs> and so the more I thought about it, the more I thought back to my experience I had with my gym teacher and how I learned that white men have this belief that they can determine what and who is legitimate. 
And so going through the process of experiencing Ferguson, I found a new sense of power in my community that I never knew was here. I had to go away and not be present just to be able to find that power. And that power brought me a sense of healing that I never would have imagined could have come to me. And I was able to share it in pictures with friends and with family. And what I realized is having the courage to show a photo to someone that may feel differently than you feel and be okay with it can bring you a sense of joy. And that sense of joy that I found was the feeling of the little black boy inside of me being reborn. Thank you. That was Danny Boyd, a poet, songwriter, photographer, and lifelong resident of North St. Louis County. This hour, we've been listening to highlights of stories shared last night at the Greater St. Mark Family Church in North St. Louis County. The full version of each of these stories can be found on our website at stlpublicradio.org. A special thanks to the church and to the event's host, Shiraz Gorman, and to St. Louis Public Radio reporter Eli Chen, who produced the event. Also thanks to Greg Montanew, Carolina Hidalgo, Chad Davis, Lindsay Toller, Leslie Davis, Sophie Bros, and Ella Schmidt. This show was edited by Emily Woodbury. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Evie Hemphill and Lara Hamden, with production assistance from Aaron Dorr, Charlie McDonald, and Alexis Moore. The senior producer is Emily Woodbury, and the executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Sarah Fenske. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.